I found an article, um, it's a, from a psychological journal, uh, that read an abstract, really. That's what you could find online. That's when you know it's a fancy article and you just can't read it online and just find the abstract. Um, they did a f study on the faces of CEOs, uh, CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. And they found um, that uh, they used this high-tech facial recognition to look at the faces of these Fortune 500 CEOs. And they confirmed a bias that had long been known, that there was a, a certain type of look for the kind of people who were hired for those kinds of jobs. Uh, what the study went on to prove was that just because they had a kind of look it didn't mean that they were actually going to be good at the job. <laughs> um, it, it confirmed a problem that we know we have in our culture uh, when it comes to expecting our leaders to look a certain way. Uh, reading from my own doctoral work, um, a study done in 2012 and uh, published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, uh, a random double-blind study uh, science faculty from research-intensive universities rated the application materials of a student who was randomly assigned either a male or a female name, uh, was uh, applying for a laboratory manager position. Faculty participants rated the male applicator as significantly more competent and hireable than the identical female applicant. These participants also selected a higher starting salary and were offering in the package more mentoring and career opportunities to the male applicants. Uh, the gender of the faculty that were evaluating these applications did not change the result of the bias in the reading. A study done in 2003 by Columbia Business School, uh, all students were given identical information. Uh, half were given a resume with the name Heidi at the top, and the other half were given the same resume with the name Howard at the top. After their review of each, students stated uh, that they were, equal, they were competent, both were competent, they had great things to say about what was in the resume, the same level of respect came up in their conversations, but overwhelmingly, the people that reviewed Howard's resume um, said that he came across as appealing, somebody that you would want to hire for this job. Those who were looking at Heidi's resume uh, said that, wow, this person seemed competent um, and they respected the experience. Heidi was not seen as the type of person you would want to hire or work for. We culturally have a type, and it goes beyond just male and female. I just have a few years of study about that particular piece of expertise <laughs> in my own life. Um, the Israelites, this morning as we read in scripture, they keep asking for a king. They wanted a certain kind of leader, a powerful one, that would defend them as a nation. It was about power and protection. Samuel had been a good leader. He had called the people to repentance in chapter 7. Uh, I know the video kind of jumped back to last week when we talked about Hannah giving up Samuel uh, to the temple to be a, a I was going to say an intern, but that's not, that's not the biblical word, to be mentored and to be trained by Eli, the priest. Um, and, and very early in his age, uh, in his life, 
he had to speak truth to power, tough truth to power. We'll come back to that in a minute. Um, But we see Samuel's faithfulness even in just this part of his life as we read. Um, We learn in chapter 8 that Samuel is getting older. He puts his sons in charge. And the same pattern that keeps happening in these books in this period of history is that the sons are not following the ways of the father. They're corrupt. And so this group gets together and takes this opportunity. They've been pushing for a king for a long time, and this this seems like the time. Let's go to Samuel. And so they go to him and say, uh, you're old. <laughs> Isn't that a lovely way to start? They tell Samuel, you're old, uh, and your sons do not follow in your ways. Appoint for us, then, a king to govern us like the other nations. Up to, up to this point, the leadership had come from judges, um, and protection came from God. If people were not worshiping God solely, if the judges were corrupt, the people were led astray. Samuel goes to God in prayer because he's not happy about this. (laughs) And God says, listen to the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. God gives them what they want, but goes on to say that all of the ways um, that they are going to have to sacrifice in order to be a king the money, the people, their um, their inheritance, their children. If they want to move forward as this kind of nation, it will come at a great sacrifice. The Israelites don't care. Uh, they fall into the common trap that we often uh, want what we don't have because we think it will solve all our problems. God sends Saul to Samuel and tells Samuel that Saul is coming. Um, and this happens before the where Saul is actually hiding out in the luggage. He already knows what's coming. That's why he's hiding in the luggage. Um, he already has had a sign from God that he is to be the next king. He's uh, God set up multiple things to show him this was what was about to happen, including Saul having a kind of power that came over him that allowed him to prophesy uh, to a group of people. And this is all overwhelming, I think, for Saul. I've, I've never heard about Saul hanging out in the luggage. I don't know about you, but we didn't cover that in uh, VBS. And, uh, but Saul, at this point, when he knows he's about to be anointed in front of everyone, somebody is going to be on the other end of this whole group of people chanting, long live the king. And he hides out in the luggage. <laughs> Despite all that, though, once he's pulled out from uh, the luggage, um, we know that Saul stands head and shoulders above everyone else. If we were doing that kind of facial recognition, Saul would have that kind of Fortune 500 CEO sort of face. He physically represents the kind of power that the people of Israel want as their king. And so they are excited Once he gets out of the luggage, they're excited to see him and to begin chanting, long live the king. As one commentary said, though, Saul was not a great king, nor was he even a good man. He was deeply flawed. The entire first half of Samuel is dedicated to a character study about his failures. 
When reading through Samuel, you might have a tendency to be critical or judgmental of Saul at times. You'll probably feel sorry for him at times, too. But slow down and be honest with yourself. If you're open-minded, you'll realize you likely have more in common with Saul than you care to admit. The whole point of exploring Saul's failures is to warn us so we don't repeat his mistakes. The mistakes in Saul's life get bigger and bigger, uh, and his own blind spots to his own problems grow bigger and bigger as well. In 1 Samuel 13, he's told to wait for Samuel before offering sacrifices in the temple um, and before then going into battle against the Philistines. And Saul just gets impatient. He just goes for it himself. He offers the sacrifices and then goes out to kill these people in this bloody battle. He takes on this kind of mentality of taking matters into his own hands. He acts first, asks questions later, (laughs) and asks for forgiveness only if necessary. Later, he allows himself and those fighting a battle to gather spoils for themselves rather than destroying everything, which then means they gathered all of these different kinds of idols for worship rather than getting rid of them. Later, his impetuous behavior would even lead to the death of his son. His fear and feelings of inadequacy would lead him to become a paranoid leader who chases after David. And what's maybe worse than his actions are that at each of these moments, he does not take responsibility. He blames somebody else. I don't know if you noticed in the drawing, but Samuel's like, what are you doing (laughs) in the picture? And Saul's like, what? What did I do? He's got his hands open and he's leaning back. That was intentional because every time Samuel comes to Saul and says, what did you do when he speaks on behalf of God? Saul has some kind of excuse. He also just blames it on other people. He blames it on the people that he's supposed to be leading over and over again. At the end of the day, Saul places his real trust in himself, his plan, and others' opinions of him. And he never changes or repents. Saul's failures hit close to home if we're willing to let the story shine a spotlight onto our own hearts and minds. Saul valued the opinion of other people above God's wisdom. He feared people when he should have feared God. Moreover, he continued to worry about one thing in light of correction, his own reputation and honor. Saul is perpetually downplaying his role in the bad decisions he makes. He keeps bringing in other people as if they're always responsible for his own mistakes. The remainder of 1 Samuel accounts uh, Saul's further slide uh, into decay. His descent provides a stark contrast as we see David's rising, and we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. Alongside of Saul, we have the leadership of Samuel. We often, and even in the video, compare Saul and David And rightly so, because they're in the same kind of leadership role. They're both going to be kings of Israel. But there's also the leadership of Samuel. Samuel was leading the people before they called for a king, before Saul was put in place. He was closely aligned with God all of his life. 
early in his childhood, God gave him a message during the night for his mentor, Eli. And it wasn't a good, encouraging, kind kind of word. It was a harsh word from God. Samuel had to have the courage to give the word to Eli, the way he would continue calling out the Israelites and that he would call out Saul. All throughout his life, he was calling out leaders, calling out others for their behavior, for their mistakes. Not on his own because he was a know-it-all, but because he was closely related and connected to God. God was Samuel's king. And we see some of Samuel's love for his people um, in his conversation with God. We see his pride in his humanness, too, when God says, don't worry, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And still, with those feelings of not being enough, of having made mistakes, with this fear of rejection, Samuel leads the way that God calls him to. And that means being a mentor to Saul, who will be, who will be coming after him. We choose every day how we want to lead in the world and who we want to follow. We can be a force for good, bringing joy and healing and peace into the world. We can lead people closer to God. A sticker I once saw, <laughs> a sticker, the wisdom of stickers, um, said, we can be the reason that someone believes in the goodness of God. And while it may have been on a sticker, there's a lot of truth to that. We can choose to speak up to power, be honest in the face of difficulties or go along with it. We can choose to speak up to unkindness, to cruelty, to downright meanness. We can take responsibility for our own actions and ask for forgiveness, dealing appropriately with our mistakes and honoring those around us. We choose every day who we will follow. We choose who we will learn from. We can choose to fall into the stereotypes or believe the stereotypes. We can choose to think that anything other than God will save us. We can chase after the approval of someone who's well-connected, has the look, maybe has all the answers. Or we can think outside the box. We can find value and leaders and teachers who don't look like what we would expect. We can value humility and a really good question. <laughs> we can learn from someone who doesn't look like us, who doesn't have our background, maybe even someone we don't first agree with. The questions linger. How will you lead in the world and who will you follow? In a world where women and people of color are not given the same opportunities, how will you create them? How will you listen and learn? In a world where LGBTQ individuals are not fully accepted, what will you do to change that? In a world where it feels, uh, as Suzanne Stabile said this week in a conference I went to on the Enneagram, like shame, anger, and fear are following us around these days, everywhere, uninvited, raining down on us, anger, shame, and fear. How will you make a difference? The world needs us. It needs our kindness. It needs our humility. It needs us to speak up and have the courage. Will you pray with me?